Let's continue to worship, shall we, by turning in our Bibles to Revelation 21. If you need a copy of God's Word, the ushers will be happy to get one into your hands. Revelation 21. We're going to bite off a fairly large chunk this morning of verses 9 to 27. So you're going to want to keep your finger on the text and your uh, pen in hand and your ear open and especially your heart wide to what the Lord has for us from his word. Revelation 21 verses 9 to 27. Augustine was a 5th century theologian. I don't know about you, but every time I hear like 5th century or 13th century or any century, I have to think like, okay, when exactly was that? 5th century means the 400s. 19th century means the 1800s and so on. So Augustine was this theologian, kind of the the mucky muck of mucky mucks in the the land of the day, the the Middle East. 5th century, who wrote a book titled The City of God. No small tome. City of God, or the city of God against the pagans, which ought to clue you in as to what it was about, at least to some extent. City of God against the pagans. That's the full title. Rome had just fallen to the Visigoths in 410 BC. That would be like Washington, D.C. falling to the Chinese in our day, if you want to picture it. No little thing. Momentous. Momentous. And because of it, the people of Rome and the people of the entire Roman Empire at the time were shaken to the core. Their city had fallen. Their flagship was no more. They were shaken to the core. And Augustine, in response to all of that, stepped in with a book to redirect their hope and narrow their focus, urging them to take their hope and their focus off of the temporal and put it on to the eternal. Off of the city of man, if you will, and on to the city of God. And that is exactly the point of Revelation 21. That we would narrow our focus and take our hope off of the things of this life, the things of this earth, this city, if you will, and put it all on the things to come and the holy city. To take our eyes off of things below and put them on things above. Off of the present and on to the future. Namely, the new Jerusalem. Because make no mistake, this city, this life, is going to be shaken. Your life from time to time is going to be shaken. Maybe even right now you're in the midst of it being shaken. It's going to happen. It's going to happen repeatedly. And one day it's going to happen finally where it's not just shaken, but this all passes away. And where you put your hope right now, right now, makes all the difference. All the difference in whether you're shaken. All the difference in whether you pass away. All the difference in whether you are full of fear or full of confidence. Full of dread or full of joy. That's the underlying reason that God gives us this 
incredible, glorious glimpse of what he has prepared for those who love him. You follow along, verses 9 to 14. Then came one of the seven angels, the Apostle John writes, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. Remember those, the seven last plagues, the last in the series of judgments on the earth during the Great Tribulation, chapter 16, about five years ago or so. <laughs> then came one of the seven angels and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. We talked about this last week. Come, I will show you the, the church, the bride, the wife of the Lamb, common metaphor in the New Testament for the church. I will show you the church, the angel says. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Remember, the new Jerusalem is both the church and a city. Both and. One metaphor with two meanings. The people of God and the place of God. Keep that in mind. One metaphor, two meanings. And already, here in verse 11, John can't help but comment on its beauty. And our beauty. Verse 11, having the glory of God, it's radiant like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Rare indeed because jasper, if you know anything about stones, which I didn't, but I looked a few up. Rare indeed because jasper is normally opaque, cloudy, anything but radiant and clear. In fact, it, most often it, it comes in a variety of different opaque colors. Driving home the uniqueness of New Jerusalem and all its glory right from the start. Its uniqueness and its glory and its beauty from the top. And that's just the beginning. Verse 12. It had a great high wall, New Jerusalem, this holy city, with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on, on the east three gates, they were inscribed. On the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 tribes and 12 apostles are intended to remind us and assure us that the holy city will be perfectly complete. It's the first of five characteristics in this passage. It's perfectly complete. Perfectly complete. Something old Jerusalem never was. And nor current Jerusalem. And I'm not talking about its infrastructure or, or the borders of the city. I'm talking about its people. Old Jerusalem was never comprised of all of God's people, ever. There were always people scattered abroad, all, people of God scattered abroad, and there were always unbelievers in the city as well. But it did always represent Jerusalem. It did always represent the heart and the hope of God's people. 
The heart and the hope of God's entire kingdom, for that matter. Like a capital city in our day. Think of Washington, D.C., Paris, France, London, England. They represent the heart and the hope of their respective nations. God help us. And so calling our future dwelling place New Jerusalem, better to stick with that as our example. Calling the, our future dwelling place New Jerusalem is to say that it's our new heart and our new hope. And not just our hope, but the actual fulfillment of it. Where the people of God and the place of God come together for all eternity. And not just some of God's people, but all of us from all time. A city perfect, perfectly complete with both New and Old Testament believers. New Jerusalem, the holy city, yet to come after the millennium, is going to be a city that's perfectly complete with New and Old Testament believers. That's the idea of 12 tribes and 12 apostles. Look at verse 12, second part again. On the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed all around, all of the gates. Presumably one for each gate, or maybe it was all of them on all the gates. We don't know, but nonetheless, they were on all the gates, the names of the 12 patriarchs of Israel, representing God's people of old. Representing them, predominantly Jews, God's people of old, who feared God and kept his commandments. They were his. Old covenant believers, saved by grace through faith, just like us. True. Saved by grace through faith, just like us. Only their faith was in God's spoken word and promised Messiah while ours is in God's living word and revealed Messiah. But both, them and us, saved by God's grace through faith. The point being, Old Testament believers will be, will be part of the holy city represented by the 12 patriarchs of ancient Israel. But that's not all. It will also be comprised of New Testament believers, those who are God's people under the new covenant from every tribe, tongue, and nation we've seen in the book of Revelation. And especially so because of verse 14. It says that the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 apostles of the Lamb being the 12 apostles of Jesus. Rock-solid men who God called and used and commissioned to build and support the church all over the world to this day. To this day. We stand on their shoulders by virtue not only of what they did, but what they wrote in the New Testament. And here in Revelation 21... At the end of time, in the eternal state, they represent all of us who stand on their shoulders. They represent those of faith in Jesus, the 12 apostles of the Lamb, indicating that the holy city is comprised of both Old and New Testament believers, perfectly, perfectly 
complete. Second, it's perfectly massive. It's not only perfectly complete, the holy city is going to be perfectly massive. Look at verse 15. And the one who spoke with me, John says, the angel, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. A rod of gold probably indicating perfect accuracy. Verse 16, the city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length, he gives a clarifying statement, its length and width and height are equal. Its length and width and height are equal. In other words, he sees a cube in his vision. And not just any old cube, but a cube that measures, catch it, 1,380 miles per side. 1,380, that's 12,000 stadia. 1,380 miles. And it's as high as it is long and wide. Now, if you're like me, you have no idea what in the world that looks like or how big that really is. So I did a few calculations, <laughs> physics head that I am. And just to give you a visual of that, such a city would pretty much cover the western half, western two-thirds of the United States. That's roughly 1,380 miles per side. And if you've ever driven just from here to Colorado across Nebraska, you know how far at least some of that is. It's a ridiculous distance, 1,380 miles. And let's just say, just for the sake of our imagination, let's just say that the ceilings of every level of the city that size, let's just say that the ceilings of every single level were a mile high. So 1,380 levels, each level a mile high. So you can take in, no matter what level you're on, you can take in the skies all you want. You want to talk about big sky, you've got it in the, in the holy city. 1,380 levels, mile high each level. If that were the case, I have no idea if that's the case. But I just happen to think that they're vaulted ceilings. But if that's the case, there would be no less than 2.6 billion square miles of living space. 2.6 billion square miles. That's 13 times the entire Earth's surface. 46 times the total land area on the Earth. And that includes Antarctica. 46 times the current dwelling space available on this earth. And that's if the ceilings are no less than a mile high on each level of the holy city. Which means if there are, I don't know, let's say three billion people, three billion believers by the time the Lord returns and the new Jerusalem is laid out after the millennium. Let's just say for sake of argument that there are three billion people that will inhabit this particular city. If you're wondering about, oh man, I don't like to be too close to people. I like to live out in the country. I, I, don't, I put up fences and all that. I know some of you are already thinking that way. 
If there are, and there's only been 10 billion people in the entire history of humanity, 10 billion, all right? And 9 billion of those just in the last 125 years. And so let's just say that 3 billion people come to faith in Jesus Christ and inhabit the New Jerusalem. If that's the case, with the size that I've described here for you, that means that every person, let me find this on my notes just to make sure that I've got it. Yeah, that means that every person will have almost one square mile of living space. Almost one square mile of living space. And that's just the city. Just the city. The rest of the earth, along with the heavens and the depths, are presumably wide open. So for those of you who love to own and work the land, man, have at it. In fact, you can have some of mine. I just want to look at it. <laughs> and for those of you who love to explore, man, the universe is your oyster. Thank you, Shakespeare. But I don't think the intent of these measurements is to give us exact dimensions at all. I think they're meant to convey vastness. I think they're meant to convey completeness and, and perfection. I think they're meant to say that our dwelling place is going to perfectly accommodate us and perfectly satisfy us and perfectly overwhelm us for all eternity. I think that's the idea. So don't get caught up on calculating this or calculating that or exact dimensions. I don't think that's the point. I think the point is that your heart would be so blown away, you can't hardly believe it, but you do because it's in God's word. And that's not even the half of it. Because third, the holy city is going to be perfectly secure. It's perfectly complete, it's perfectly massive, and it's perfectly secure. Secure because verse 12 says, check it out, we're going to skip around here in three different verses. Verse 12 says it had a great high wall. Wall. Great and high meaning insurmountable. Insurmountable. Plus, it's guarded by 12 angels. It had a great high wall, verse 12, with 12 gates. And at the gates, 12 angels, presumably to guard the wall, making it unapproachable. And so, just in one verse, we have here that the wall is insurmountable and unapproachable. Secure. And then verse 17, skip down there. Verse 17 says, He also measured its wall, the angel did, 144 cubits. 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, a dimension of perfection, I think. Just like the city dimensions, and dimensions of perfection. And this too, these 144 cubits are perfectly massive. That's about 216 feet, which could be the height of the wall, but given the dimensions of the city itself, measured in hundreds of miles, I think it's the width of the wall. The 144 cubits, I think it's the width of the wall, especially since the height is described in verse 12 as high. Whatever the case, the city is perfectly secure, surrounded by a wall that's insurmountable, unapproachable, and impenetrable. Plus, it's not even threatened. All of that, and the city isn't even threatened. Look down to verse 25 here for a second. It says, its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night 
there. In other words, it's unthreatened. That would be like, um, I don't know, putting Fort Knox in the middle of a baby nursery. Fort Knox, one of the most insurmountable, unapproachable, you know, places on earth. That would be like putting Fort Knox in the middle of a baby nursery and leaving the doors completely open. Why? Because it's not threatened. They're a bunch of babies. What, what do they want with the vault? Unless there's like a squeaky toy in it, like nothing. All of which means we need not worry in the holy city. We need not worry about natural disasters anymore. We need not fear. We need not think about enemies. We don't have to lock our doors every night. We can leave them wide open. Nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to doubt. Just complete, perfect peace and security. How good is that? Fourth, it's perfectly beautiful. Gosh, I love each successive one more than the other, I think. It's perfectly beautiful, almost indescribably beautiful. Starting with John's effort in verse 11, as we saw, and continuing in verse 18, check it out. The wall, John says, as he's describing this vision, the wall was built of jasper, we saw that earlier, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. I, I don't even know if that's a thing, an, an earthly thing. I have my doubts as to whether it is, because gold is a metal that's opaque. You can't see through it. Maybe it's a way to describe the shininess, but maybe it's literally a, an earthly way to describe something that's out of this world in such a way or in some terms that would somehow indicate us that the beauty is crazy good. Breathtakingly good. He goes on, verse 19, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth, tenth chrysoprase, I checked the pronunciation, chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Remember, the walls are 1,380 miles wide and long, which means the gates must be extraordinarily massive, each made of a great single pearl. And the street of the city, finishes where he starts, was pure gold, like transparent glass. When Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, he didn't mean a shack. Oh, I love that. And this is the point in this passage where you realize that John is trying to convey something that's unconveyable. He's trying to convey something that's literally out of this world. He's trying to convey something that defies explanation, 
with an explanation. That would be like um, hiking Glacier National Park. A few of you I know have done so. That would be like hiking Glacier National Park and then coming back with no pictures and telling all your friends, you should have seen it, it was awesome. (laughs) And most likely you're going to get some blank stares in response. And you're going to be thinking, like, what is wrong with you? And they're going to be thinking, what is wrong with you? You're, you're trying to tell me about this when you could have very easily snapped a photo. You could have even done it vertically and then, you know, like a little thing on the screen. But if you did it horizontal, it would have been incredible. No, no, no. You just came back with words. And no matter what you say about it, you wouldn't do it justice. Same here, I think. Even though God pulled out all the stops and gave John an amazing, amazing vision to describe. Including stones from the Garden of Eden and gold so pure it's clear. It's still hard to imagine and hard to describe. So so what's the point? Like resign ourselves to staring blankly at the page? Staring blankly off into space as we hear these things, as we try to imagine these things and fail miserably? Of course not. It's meant, I think, to increase our anticipation of being there. Our eagerness to see it for ourselves and take it all in. And second, I think it's meant to stir our imagination and fire our hope. To to narrow our focus and increase our hope. To take it off of things below and onto things above. Off of things now and onto things to come. To replace our fear with great joy because there's going to come a day when our breath is taken away every single day for all eternity. It's that beautiful. Perfectly beautiful. I was driving to church this morning, and as I sat at the intersection of uh, Utica and 53rd, I, as I was turning left, I glanced to my right, and I saw the, I, I love the glow, the glow of pre-sunrises and the glow of post-sunsets. I just love the glow, where there's no clouds in the sky. And this morning, there were no clouds in the sky in the east, and there was just this glow as I looked down 53rd. And I thought to myself, that's cool. And then I turned. First of all, shame on me. Because that's a foretaste of glory divine. And secondly, secondly, I will never, ever say that's cool to anything in the holy city. Ever. Every single moment of every single day will be full of that's awesome. You got to see it. And the guy next to me is going to be like, I do, I do. (laughs) And the one next to him and next to him and so on. Because it's perfectly beautiful. That's the fourth characteristic. And then number five, it's perfectly full. It's perfectly full the new Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of God. Verse 22, 
I'm going to read through verse 27. John says, And I saw no temple in the city. Such crucial verses. And I saw no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Verse 27 is not to say that there's a chance of sin or sinful people coming in. It's not to say that. That's going to be put to rest once and for all at the end of the millennium, before the new earth and the new Jerusalem even appear. Rather, verse 27 is another exhortation to repent and believe right now. It's another exhortation to repent and to believe right now. Otherwise, you'll spend the rest of eternity on the outside looking in. And even then, from a long, long distance with an impassable chasm between you and it. Repent and believe. For your sake and for God's sake, for his glory, don't miss out on all that he has in store for those who love him and keep his commandments. But for those who are in, the holy city is perfectly full of people. Four little characteristics of this particular characteristic. The holy city is going to be perfectly full of people, just like we found in the first point. All believers from all time. No vacancies and no overcrowding. No no-shows and no surprises. God knows every single one from before the foundation of the world and every single one is going to be there. Every room full and nobody lost. I will lose none of those, Jesus said, that the Father has given me. Nobody lost. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Second, it's going to be perfectly full of worship. Perfectly full of worship. There's no designated place of worship in the holy city. It's full of worship. Everywhere and always. I think that's the idea of verse 22. I touched on it briefly last week, at least in one of the services. Look at verse 22 again. I saw no temple in the city. That is no designated place for God to reside and us to worship. Like we designate this church building for, for our place of corporate worship once a week and throughout the week and different ministries and so on. But in, in the New Jerusalem, there's going to be no temple, no designated place for God to reside because that's the idea of a, a temple in the Bible. It's a place where God resides. And so as followers of Jesus Christ individually, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us. And corporately, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit because we are the place right now where he resides. And that will continue to be true in the New Jerusalem. But in addition to that, there being no temple 
Because its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Meaning, God is everywhere, and therefore, worship is too. There need not be any designated place of worship because every last square inch of the new universe is going to be the place of worship because every last square inch of the universe is going to be where God is and he's going to be acknowledged as such with nobody in rebellion, nobody in doubt, nobody anything. We won't have to go to worship him in the holy city. He'll be there. We'll worship as we are going. We'll worship as we are living. We won't have to think of him. We'll never stop. He'll never be out of sight, out of mind. Can you imagine? He'll never be out of sight. Like imagine the, the best time in your life. Maybe it's right now, Lord willing, where you are in a groove with the Lord. You are walking with him. Your, your union, your connection with him, your abiding in him is the best that it's ever been. Now multiply that ad infinitum, every single moment. We're not going to have to think of him. He's, he's going to be right in front of us. He's going to be with us. He's going to be in us, continuing by his spirit. As naturally as we breathe, we will worship. And just like we breathe, we will never stop worshiping. In which case, the holy city will be full of worship, every person in every part at every moment. I think about some of our times of worship and some of our nights of worship from time to time. And I, and I think in the middle of them, even though I'm like dead dog tired, like I, I want this to keep going. This is awesome. It's going to in heaven. No matter what we're doing, it's all going to be for the Lord. It's all going to be for his glory. And we won't get tired. And the whole place is going to be full of worship. Third, it's going to be perfectly full of glory. Perfectly full of glory. And these next two start to blur the lines, but let me see if I can just bifurcate them just for, for a minute. This third one and the, and the fourth one big word, bifurcate, separate, separate, separate. I just coined a new word. <laughs> it's going to be full of glory. John saw the holy Jerusalem. Look at verse 11, verse 11. John saw the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And then skip down to verse 23. That says the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. The glory of God is the outward manifestation of his inward holiness. It's, the glory of God is the, the visible appearance of his invisible greatness. The visible appearance of his invisible attributes. Right? You with me? Nope. Blank stares. Blank stares. <laughs> you, you can think of it this way. Think of a bonfire. This is the fall. The fall's coming up here. I guess technically it's October 1st. Oh, man. Fall is here, all right? We need to have a bonfire. Think bonfire for a second, all right? When a bonfire burns, it gives off both heat and light. Got it? It gives off, bonfire burns, it gives off both heat and light. One invisible and felt, the other visible and bright. 
So you might say that light is the glory of heat. Or light is the visible manifestation of heat. Same for the glory of God. Light is to heat as glory is to God. The visible manifestation of his many invisible attributes. And in the new Jerusalem, his glory will shine. Uninhibited. Now it's inhibited. Then uninhibited. Then unrestricted. Never more evident and never more strong. Plus, verse 24 says, by its light, the light of Jerusalem, that is, from the glory of God, by its light, light of the city, will the nations walk. In other words, by its light, they will conduct their lives, just like we conduct our, li our lives by the light of the sun and to some extent the light of the moon. By its light, it says, will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring, catch this, their glory into it, their worship, the, the visible manifestation of their invisible love, the visible manifestation of their invisible devotion and reverence and awe. They're, they're going to bring all of that in in a visible way as well. Just like we bring our worship in now in a visible way with our bodily presence and with our voices and sometimes with our raised hands and sometimes clapping hands, all expressions, visible outward expressions of invisible devotion and love and praise that flows from our heart. Same here. Verse 25, and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. And then he comes back around. They will bring it, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. That is the praise and worship of those who fill the city. It's all intertwined, isn't it? As much as you try, you really can't separate it. Glory and worship and light and everything. Fulfilling prophecies like Isaiah chapter 60 verse 11. It says, your gates shall be open continually. Day and night they shall not be shut. That people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was riffing off of Isaiah, who spoke this 700 years before Christ. For the earth will be filled. Why did he say such a thing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Filled, full, perfectly full of God's glory, our glory, all glory. And then last, closely associated with it, the holy city is going to be full of light. Full of people, full of worship, full of glory, and full of light. Because where God is, glory is, and where glory is, light is. You can't bifurcate those things. You can't separate those things. Where God is, glory is. Where glory is, light is. A.K.A. righteousness and brightness. Light. Righteousness and brightness. So much so that there will be no need for the sun or moon. What? God's word says it, so I believe it, and that settles it. That's the glory of God right now, by the way. 
Only then it's going to be completely exposed and we're going to be completely exposed to it. You want to talk about a million angels falling to the floor. We're going to be there first. Overcome and overwhelmed. Verse 23 again. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. In other words, both will be visibly present, and both will shine. Once again, just like Isaiah prophesied, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor brightness shall the moon give you, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. The city of God will be perfectly full of light. No more night, no more sun, no more sin, and no more fear. Just worship, glory, Believers and God, perfectly full in every single way. I hope that fires you up like it does me. I've prayed that way. And I'm going to continue to do so this week. And I hope that you feel these things as much as you see them. Once again, not that they're meant to paint a picture, but that they're provide, to provide a description that with the eyes of our heart we would see and, and we would feel and we would be awestruck and we would be overwhelmed. I, I hope, oh, I hope. If that's not true, at least to a little bit right now. Either I've failed or your heart is hard. I hope you feel these things as much as you see them filled with an overwhelming sense of awe and anticipation and gratitude that you live and long for. The city of God, not the city of man. Let's pray. Lord, it's hard to imagine all this. I know you know that. I know that you know our frame I know that you know our limitations more than we know our, our own. And, but I, I just want to say that to you. It's hard to imagine all this, God, but we sure do love it. Oh, goodness, how we love it. And we sure are thankful. We sure are grateful. So help us, God, we pray. Etch these truths on our heart and, and keep them ever before us. Remind us of these things when times are bad and when times are good. So that we keep the faith and hold fast and, and don't miss out on a single aspect of it. Help us, we pray, Lord. You are good and you are great. And we believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.